Today's episode of Grad School Confessional is brought to you by Academic Publishing. It's like traditional publishing, except you don't get paid. And actually, you pay for it. And also, you don't get royalties. And also, if you publish with the wrong publisher, your reputation will suffer. And also, no one reads your work. And also, even if someone wanted to read your work, they might not have access to it unless they paid a ridiculously inflated article price or subscription fee. But other than that, it's exactly like traditional publishing. You're listening to Grad School Confessional, a podcast that explores the good, bad, and ugly of graduate school, directly from graduate students themselves. I'm your host, Dr. Yoasway. From awkward supervisor interactions to reviewer two horror stories to convincing your parents why grad school was a good idea, we read out the confessions of graduate students from all over and chat about the realities of pursuing higher education. I'd like to welcome back my co-host and co-author of choice, my wife Anna. Anna is a PhD candidate studying digital health, a field where researchers ask, does scrolling through the Lululemon app count as exercise? Depends on how vigorously you scroll. Also, I feel it's more co-author by necessity. Hmm. I think it's more of a symbiotic relationship. Like us and the dogs. But, okay, but like what do the dogs even offer us? All they do is eat and poop and ignore me when I'm crying. Emotional support animal my ass. Anyway, this month, Grad School Confessional is putting a spooky spin on things with a series of episodes that explore some of the frightening sides of the grad school experience. Today's episode is about publishing horror stories in grad school. As if paying $5,000 to get your article published wasn't scary enough. Seriously, Lancet Digital Health, $5,000? What are you on about? I really, I feel like there's a double standard because like when a predatory journal is like, if you pay us $2,000, we'll publish your paper. Um, It's like, no, this isn't legitimate. But when Lancet Digital Health is like, hey, we'll publish your paper for $5,000 but also will yell at you in between and tell you all the things that you did wrong, suddenly it's all kosher. And it feels good, right? I feel like the model of academic publishing, though, is just so backwards. Like the fact that you don't get paid to publish your article, but then you have to pay to get it out there, but then you don't get paid out of it. There's no royalties that come from it. Okay, I had this exact same debate on Twitter with people, and I was like, science fiction magazines are free to publish in, but also will pay you. Granted, they will pay you 10 cents a word for a short story, but they will pay you. And people were like, this is not a sustainable model for academic publishing. And I was like, why? Elsevier literally turned a profit of like... Oh, yeah. Something dumb, like billions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. And also, it's not like we pay our reviewers. Yeah, I know. There's a lot of flaws to it. Where's the money going? Well, I mean, I think this first story exemplifies some of the challenges of academic publishing well, uh, specifically navigating the sensitive topic of authorship. They write, Negotiating authorship ranking and or inclusion is a nightmare, and to make everyone happy is a talent. For example, I am working on one study that will produce three to four papers with a few colleagues in my lab. It was communicated beforehand that all the co-authors would need to approve of and help with editing and writing the paper before submission. Currently, there are five authors, including myself, on the paper, but two of the co-authors were absent throughout the whole process. 
In my mind, it feels extremely unfair to have those two colleagues as co-authors on any of the papers, since they did not help or do any work. When I voiced my opinion, the other two colleagues that worked on the papers agreed, but did not want to rock the boat and upset the other two colleagues. It is upsetting that people can get credit for not doing work. That's academia. That's academia, man. That's like. But like seriously, that's like the entire basis of academic publishing is that you have you know these advisors or supervisors run these labs and they have all their grad students run all the studies, oftentimes write the paper to start with, and then they just get their name on it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if they're a good supervisor, they will polish up some of the writing that their student did mm -hmm. but for the most part no you're right and the thing is we don't even pitch it as a shady thing we're just kind of well, like yeah it's like everyone knows it's like knows. this is this is the way it's supposed to be and i think that's the most infuriating part is that like if you are working with a supervisor who's willing to do the bare minimum mm -hmm. um you feel so grateful I'm lucky to have a supervisor who actually co-writes papers mm -hmm. and actually does, I would say, most of the work, which makes me feel very, very incompetent. <laughs> um, but I feel like that's the uh, better end of the spectrum. I guess so. And, you know, to its credit, like any a few papers being kind of like this group project, right? Mm -hmm. Where like in an ideal world, you have everyone playing to their strengths and doing the part of the project that like works for them, right? So some people are going to be doing the data collection and doing all the actual like research side of things. And some people are going to be like the conception of the idea. And some people will be doing the writing of the manuscript. And then everyone kind of contributes to the end product. Ah, but the question is, then what is the order of the author I list? know. What's more important? What's more important? Doing the research itself or coming up with the idea or writing the paper. And like, I think there's a lot of different schools of thought on this. Like, for example, I know that some people I've worked with view, if you wrote the first draft, you are first author, right? Really? Yeah, yeah. If you wrote the first draft, you're first author because, you know, you, it's, it's called authorship, right? Yeah. Like, you wrote it. And I know that that can be kind of controversial because let's say that you had somebody else on the project who literally, you know, might have come up with the project. They might have actually run all the participants or all the experiments. Mm -hmm. And they looked at the manuscript at the end, right? And they helped to write it in the sense that they helped make sure it was accurate. Yeah. Like, what does that person do, right? Are they not worthy of first author? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think there's an easy way to answer this yeah. i suppose we could just draw straws <laughs> but then but it matters so much right like you think about the academic market and like your name is your reputation first is your goodwill last. first and last man that's, yeah that's, those are the only two positions that matter yeah really really just like first, in life. first and last i guess so if you're not first you're last. But that's a good thing in academic publishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess. <laughs> it's like the opposite. <laughs> I was yeah. last author. Y'all on a two-author publication. <laughs> I consulted. Hey, that's how I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also think, too, like, what is the minimum amount of work you need to put in to get authorship, right? Because, like, obviously this person in their stories, like, they didn't do anything. And they obviously helped at the beginning, it sounds like, with the, coming up with the ideas and what the papers would be. But... You know, is that enough to warrant authorship? Like, I've had people who've helped me out with the stats, right? My mm -hmm. statistics and running the software. And, like, that is probably takes you all of, you know, if you know what you're doing, all of, like, a day, maybe two days, 
right? You clean up the data and then you run it. And that is that the same sort of level of work that deserves authorship as someone else who's written the whole paper, run the whole experiment? Okay, but didn't you say you deserve authorship if you, if the manuscript could not be mm-hmm. the same shape without your contribution? Sure. So something to the effect of like, Without your contribution, the manuscript would not be significantly be in a different form than it is. Yeah, because like, like that. if that person didn't do stats for you, you basically not have a paper. Yeah, yeah, but I guess more like it's not as if when you write a paper, you get this number attached to it where it's like your first author, but it's eighty percent of the work is what you did, and then you know ten percent is what this other person did, and ten percent is what this other person did. It doesn't look like that. And at the end of the day, when people read these articles, it's just like oh. First means they did most of the work. Second means they kind of tagged along. And then authors three through, you know, 18 have no idea what the paper was about. They're like... And last author was like, yeah. It's like when shows have the cast list. Yeah. And they have starring and all the big stars. And yeah. that's your authors one and last. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then it has featuring. And that's like, you know, your your author number two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then appearances by... <laughs> You know, it actually reminds me of those, like, concert posters for Coachella or, like, those festivals oh, yeah. where you got your headliners up top and then, like, just a bevy of just random bands you've never heard of. And those are all, like, the authors in between. Yeah. That's that's actually a really good analogy for it. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, but, yeah, even if once you've established authorship and the paper is ready to submit, the trials and tribulations don't end. In fact, they often only just begin once they leave your hands and into the hands of the editor. Our next grad student recounts a time where they wish the editor had a slightly gentler touch. They write, I felt like I had been through the ringer preparing a lengthy master's thesis, my supervisor and I agonizing over every section deleted, but it was finally ready to submit. On top of that, I was heading to Italy for the first family vacation in years, so I could not have been happier. I was on a train in Italy a few days later and couldn't believe it, I was already hearing back from the journal. I opened my email, buzzing with excitement, which was immediately torn to shreds as I read my paper was desk rejected. The editors said they wouldn't even consider reading it because the paper was not in proper APA format and continued to list all of the ways in which it wasn't properly formatted. I was disappointed in myself, but also wondered how my supervisor could have let me submit this atrociously formatted paper. My mom, who is an academic veteran, gave me a compassionate hug then said to me with a smile, Welcome to academia. Now you've got your first desk rejection out of the way. Honestly, desk rejection is way better than getting rejected after a review. Yeah, no, I would agree with that, actually, because then you kind of just know, you know? Yeah, desk rejection is like going on a first date and it doesn't work out. And you're like, yeah, you seem pretty cool, but it's okay. Mm -hmm. And then getting rejected after reviews is like dating a guy and then going on Christmas vacation and meet his family, and then you come back, and he's like, I changed my mind. I don't oh, love you no, anymore. Oh, no, I get it. It's like, yeah, so peer review is kind of like cuffing season, you know, where you kind of get to know the paper, and you get to meet the paper's family, and then you kind of get to comment on it in small ways. And then at the end of it, as a peer reviewer, you're kind of just like, yeah, no, I don't think this is, I don't think this is going where I want it to go. And then you just give it back, and they're like, reject it. And it takes so much longer. Remember when I thought cuffing season was about rolling your jeans? Because <laughs> the temperature was in between. <laughs> and I've never felt like more of a boomer. <laughs> like, yeah, you roll them up. 
because it's like you don't know if it's cold or warm because <laughs> it's fall. Oh, thank God you're pretty. So, <laughs> um, I wish someone would give me a hug after every desk rejection. Oh, I give you a hug after every desk rejection. I got desk rejected literally like two days ago and you didn't give me a hug. Okay, but we were like outside and in public. What? Uh, what? <laughs> Yeah, so it's just an FYI. Anna doesn't do PDA, so if I'm having a traumatic event in public, I am all alone. You're on your own. There's no emotional support until we get home. I will stand beside you like a fire hydrant. I'm just like, as a witness. There, there, buddy. There, there. <laughs> yeah, but no, I just rejection, like, I literally got a paper desk rejected like three days ago. I think t- a couple of weeks ago, I had like two desk rejections like in the same week. No. I had two rejections that were both peer review rejections. Oh. I know. And they were like, I was waiting a couple of months on the one and it's rough. It's rough. It like rejection in academia. I know it's part of the job and it's kind of like embedded within every aspect of it, like grant applications and whatnot, but it doesn't sting any less. I feel like it just sings for less time. That's kind of what happens after a while. You know, mm. you would disagree. I don't know. I think I had the opportunity to watch you go through it for a few years before I really got into it. Mm-hmm. So I was so jaded <laughs> before we submitted our first paper. I was like, eh. What's the point? <laughs> What's the point? Existence is pain. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's definitely a reality of the academic life. It's crazy how the editor was like, I'm not even going to bother reading it, but then was like, but here's all the ways that your paper is wrong. And <laughs> like goes through it, right? Uh, do you think that there's a benefit to receiving sort of harsh or sort of maybe overly critical feedback from reviewers? No. No. Because, I mean, fundamentally, I don't think it's the reviewer's job. I've gotten feedback before where people were like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the paper, but I personally don't agree with what you're saying. So mm-hmm. I don't think it should be published. And I was like, that's... Sucks for you. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess it raises a good point. Like, what is the role of the editor? What is the role of the reviewer? You know, like, as the editor, if you pass something on, pass your desk, and send it to reviewers, I'm assuming that means that you feel it is potentially of, of interest to your readership. Yeah, that it would add value to the field that you represent. Mm -hmm. And I think as a reviewer, you need to respect that and you need to give an honest review. I've also seen people come back with reviews where reviewers would be like, I disagree with the entire premise of the study, but it's a well-conducted study, so I think it should be published. And honestly, like, I would love to get a review like that Mm because I feel like that person really understands what science is about. Yeah, yeah. And science is about sort of building upon these ideas that other people have, but also, you know, critically analyzing the foundation that some of these works are built on, right? Like they're called theories for a reason. We're not entirely certain that they are the truth or they are... Yeah, we just collectively decided close enough. (laughs) Or like maybe this is a way that like the world can be understood, right? Approximated. Approximated. (laughs) Approximated. (laughs) Gravity. Good enough. We can work with this. <laughs> it seems to happen every so often, so I, yeah. I think it's going to be a theory, yeah. <laughs> a train to Italy, though, that's a rough place to get a desk rejection, especially your first desk rejection. No, I think as far as rejections go, train in Italy tops being on the can 
first thing in the morning. <laughs> oh, oh, I know you all do it. I know you all do it. Everybody does it because we're obsessed with productivity. And I know you're on that can and you're scrolling through your email and you're refreshing that bad boy and you're retweeting my tweets. I know it's happening on the can. <laughs> Truly, all of our uh, all of our best thinking and work happens while on the toilet. <laughs> and some emotional coping. Yeah, you're yeah. Like, oh. Close the cell doors, kind of just like deep breathing. But not too deep. Depends on who's been in there before. <laughs> Disgusting. Mm. <laughs> Once you're past the desk, the final things between you and that sweet, sweet publication are your peer reviewers. And while the spirit of peer review has always been to validate and fortify the scientific rigor of papers, many times peer reviewers succumb to the same faults and biases that us mere mortals often experience. Our final confession comes from a grad student whose submitted paper cause some drama among their peer reviewers. They write, On my third paper in graduate school, one of the reviewers revealed their identity because my paper had criticized their theories and they wanted to admit bias. The other reviewer saw it, accused me and reviewer one of doing some sort of under-the-table deal, and said in his review that I, my co-authors, and reviewer one were acting unethically and should be banned from ever publishing in that journal again. Fortunately, the journal in question allows reviewers to reveal their identities, so no rule was violated. The editor threw out the review, but waking up to that email was painful, especially since it was my third publication ever. I live for the academic drama. <laughs> I wish there was like more shady deals going on. <laughs> I know, instead it's just like people forgetting to review stuff for months and then they're like, I guess. Or like your peer reviewer hasn't come back with a review for like a year and a half. Oh yeah, they died. Hmm. We're going to reject your paper. <laughs> Their dying wish was reject that paper. <laughs> Honestly, that's fine. I would be okay with that. I I just don't know which subheading in my CV to put it under. Like this paper, <laughs> this paper literally ended a life. <laughs> is that some form of murder? Is that manslaughter? It's a negligent manslaughter. It was like you shouldn't have released it into the wild. It was clearly not ready for the eyes of other academics. It's dangerous. Too dangerous to be. <laughs> Too dangerous. Yeah, I feel like. I feel like reviewers going at it, for sure. Like, there's definitely some, some contradictory comments that I've received on papers before, where one reviewer will be like, oh yeah, like, this, the author's addressed all my comments really well, and I think it's ready to go for publication. And then another reviewer will be like, yeah, but they didn't mention this one specific thing, which kind of like gives away who they are, or that their research is, and then it's just rejected. And it's like, dude, what the heck? Yeah, I've literally had reviewers suggest, hey, you should cite these three papers all by the same author. Yeah. And I think there's supposed to be like the whole blinded peer review thing is very much like not standardized across journals. But, but it's like, we're working in your favor. We conceal your identities. All you have to do is just like not say dumb things. Don't say your name. <laughs> don't. And reviewers are just like, me at all. <laughs> you're like, No. It raises kind of another shady practice, right? Which is, I, first of all, the role of ego in academia cannot be overstated. Like, some people are so far up their own ass about the kind of research that they do and how important they are 
that the need for them to insert themselves everywhere they can is just, you know, kind of uncomfortable. Which is, like, hilarious, because this mostly happens in fields that are not even, like, that prominent. Like, it's never cancer researchers who are just like, you must cite me and only me. <laughs> Although, if there are cancer researchers listening, please let us know if we're wrong. But yeah, I feel like that's not the case. Yeah, like, it's always people who are part of a field that's like 20 people and one of them died reviewing my paper, I guess. <laughs> so 19. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's it's really just kind of feeds back into this whole academic circle jerk thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's productive because then what it does is it creates this almost exclusive club of who's publishing in this field and who it's for, right? Like these papers are no longer meant to be accessible by people outside of this field. It's just, no, this is, this is what these 20 people are going to want to hear or like advance the minutiae of this field slightly further. Okay. Talk about exclusionary. I love the thing that a lot of social papers do and anthropology papers do where they'll pick a word and then they'll be like, in this paper, I use this word to mean this. And I'm like, I thought we couldn't just change the meaning of words for the sake of changing it. How do dictionaries operate? And I'm in Soch, but like paradigm should mean one thing consistently across, I guess, paradigms, but whatever. You can't just willy nilly change it. But man, also classic reviewer two, eh? I think it's another ego thing. They'll be like, you will be reviewer two. And they're like, not reviewer one. <laughs> Die. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, kind of the trope in academia is that at least one reviewer, and it's usually reviewer two, will just leave you like this laundry list of comments and sort of scathing uh, uh, suggestions that your paper either needs to make or has not done and is therefore not worthy of publication. And I gotta be honest, as someone who's reviewed, like, uh, I would say, like, a handful of articles. Yeah. I have been reviewer too. Have you? Not all the time. Certainly not all the time. But once or twice, yeah, I have been reviewer too. And just, like, I think the most number of comments I got up to, because I had to, like, number them. Yeah. was, like, 30 or something. That's not even... Major and minor comments aside. But, I mean, yeah. I, feel, I still think it's a lot. It you is know? a lot. But I feel like when I get a laundry list like that back, I always think, don't you think that if I addressed all of these things, I wouldn't submit to a higher impact journal? <laughs> like, I'm not here because yeah. this is the pinnacle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then here's another thing, though. Isn't it to an extent a good thing that reviewers are taking the time to, like, read the whole paper and, like, go through it and... Like, to me, it's not the quantity of comments. It's kind of like the slant that okay, the reviewer is taking. Okay, but it's always the weirdest things. It's never like the framework that you're using or the fact that your entire experiment is unethical. No, no, no. <laughs> no, it's never that. What is it then? I don't know. It's mostly like you didn't define this thing the way they would define it. Oh. <laughs> I see. Maybe, yeah, but maybe no. I'm part of the problem. <laughs> but no, I definitely agree. Like sometimes the comments are just they clearly have their own field in mind or their own research interests in mind and they're like you need to talk about this in this in your paper and like but that's not what the paper's about. And it's like, like yeah, it's related like in the same way that like I guess tapeworms are related to people because tapeworms live in people. But, you know, the paper isn't about Why tapeworms. Why is it that we keep coming back to tapeworms? No, we didn't record the tapeworm bit. Remember, we took the tapeworm bit out. Yeah, but we talked about it extensively. Yeah, and now it's back. While I was back. eating. Now mm -hmm. it's that, back. 
<laughs> Dave Warren's back. <laughs> uh, anyway, you've been listening to Grad School Confessional. I'm Dr. Yoa Sway. Special thanks again to my co-host, Anna. Speaking of publishing horror stories, we're actually recording this episode basically hours before we're putting it out there, though personally, I see it more as putting us in the mindset of our grad student confessions, really putting the dead in deadline, you know what I mean? And that's my cue to go to bed. Get out of my room. I still have to edit the episode, but for a nominal fast track fee of $500, I could get the editing done quicker. Okay, okay, I'll leave. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes so that others can benefit from our mediocre advice. Please also share us with your social network and follow us on Twitter at GSConfessional. And if you have a confession you'd like to make, please use the anonymous link in the description or email thegradschoolconfessional at gmail.com. We're waiting for your funny, interesting, or controversial confessions. Until next time, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Principal Investigator, Amen. Guess who's back? Back again. Tape back. back. Yeah, we gotta go to the back. <laughs> oh, we gotta stop kissing the dogs.